Well, good morning and welcome to Central Presbyterian Church. This is our Hopare seminar series. I'd invite you to come on in, fill in these uh, front rows. Uh, don't be afraid. The, uh, the purpose of this Hopare seminar series, which takes place every Sunday at 10 before 11 o'clock worship service, is to explore the intersection between the gospel, culture, and vocation. So, in other words, we're trying to think through how we live out our calling as Christians in the world in light of the challenges and the opportunities of our particular cultural world. And therefore, we bring in a wide array of people from different backgrounds, perspectives, philosophers, practitioners, professors, and ask them to share something of what they have learned about their area of discipline and how that might inform us in our respective callings in the world. So we're very pleased this morning to have Roberta Amundsen with us, along with her husband, Howard. And so let me take a moment to uh, introduce Roberta to you, for those uh, who may not yet know her. Roberta Green Amundsen is a writer and philanthropist whose public activities are focused on deepening awareness and understanding of the role of religion in public life, the importance of knowing history to understand the present, and the vital role of the arts in shaping human experience. Since 1986, Roberta has worked with her husband, Howard, in shaping the granting priorities of the private philanthropy, Fieldstead and Company. In that time, the Amundsen's have sponsored a number of art exhibitions in the United States and Great Britain, including Caravaggio, The Final Years, and Sacred Made Real, both at the National Gallery in London. Roberta is also the co-author with Paul Marshall and Lily Gilbert of Islam at the Crossroads, and blind spot when journalists don't get religion. So we're very pleased to have Roberta here with us today speaking on the topic of beauty. So please welcome Roberta Amundsen. Jason is very kind. One of the reasons I, uh, I well, he knows I've been working on a book, and now there has to be a book, although how I'm going to get this book shaped, I still have no idea, Jason. But in a sermon, Jason mentioned that I was working on this book, so there will be, book. Between you and my son, who keeps texting me, Mom, Mom, anyway, um, he says he will, he will disown me if I don't do this. So, um, yeah, I'm terrified. So, um, it's really a pleasure to be here um, with you all today. Um, some, one other piece of background. For five years, I was the chair of the board of the Museum of Biblical Art here in New York City. Some of you may remember that. Um, it, was a, it was a wonderful 10-year um, experiment. lasted 10 years. went out with a great bang because it, uh, its last show was Donatello, uh, which the New York Times reviewed very favorably. And then when and the Wall Street Journal named it one of the 10 best shows in New York City for that year, which was 2015. And when Mobia closed after that show, uh, the New York Times lamented its passing. So we felt like we'd made uh, a, major, uh, a major statement in one of the most important cities to make it in in the world. And I had a lot of fun and a lot of uh, sleepless nights because of the Museum of Biblical Art. It was a wonderful experience. So, it's great to be here. Beauty, joy, happiness. The deepest longings of the human heart. A longing for beauty is a longing for the law. <laughs> Speaking of longing for beauty, different music. <laughs> Do it. We could use, you know, Bach. Anyway. 
in a talk given at Austin Community College in Texas. The late artist Agnes Martin described their connection, the connection of beauty, joy, and happiness this way. Beauty illustrates happiness. The wind in the grass, the glistening waves following each other, the flight of birds, all speak of happiness. At last, we are in the midst of reality, responding with joy. An older tradition found in the Psalms of David links that longing for beauty to a longing for God. In Psalm 63, one through four, David prays, O oh God, you art my God, early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh also longs for you, in a barren and dry land where no water is. <clears throat> Thus have I looked upon you in the sanctuary, that I might behold your power and your glory, for your loving kindness is better than life itself. Here, just hand me that and move it over, sorry. Um, thus have I looked upon you in the sanctuary, that I might behold your power and glory. For your loving kindness is better than life itself. My lips shall praise thee. In Psalm 84, the writer says, My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And Psalm 96 tells us that we are to worship God in the beauty of holiness. Puritan divine Jonathan Edwards wrote that it is God's beauty that draws us to him. If we are drawn by what God can do for us, we do not love God. We love ourselves, and God is useful to us. We need to be drawn by his beauty, that profound beauty of holiness, Edwards says, or our love is empty and misplaced. In 1882, in an interview in this city with the New York Evening Post, Oscar Wilde, whose own life is a litany of unfulfilled longing, put the same idea in secular terms. Man is hungry for beauty, therefore he must be filled. There is a void, nature will fill it. Beauty is not dead, the longing for it has not died. A few years ago, my husband and I took friends to hear Mumford and Sons at the O'Shea Festival in Montreal. In the darkness we stood, as 50,000, mostly young, men and women sang the lyrics to the Grammy Award-winning band's description of our situation in Awake My Soul. In these bodies we will live, in these bodies we will die. Where you invest your love, you invest your life. Awake my soul, awake my soul, awake my soul. You were made to meet your maker, you were made to meet your maker. That is a bootleg video done by me. <laughs> On an iPhone. Yes. But for many in our culture, Beauty is a highly contested term, often diluted to the point of being meaningless. In Seven Days in the Art World, Sarah Thornton takes us to California's famous art school, CalArts, founded by none other than Walt Disney. She makes it clear beauty is neither the word nor the concept aspiring artists are urged to strive for in their work. The main reason for this distaste 
is that beauty has been redefined as something that is socially constructed to give one group of people cultural power over others. Taste is regulated in this way of thinking to keep some on top of the cultural pecking order and to maintain values for certain kinds of art, thus enabling the world of dealers, galleries, and collectors to thrive, not to mention the purveyors of the beauty culture as well as the myriad geeks tracking our every internet choice with an aim to market their products or their services. Feminists make another point. The word beauty, they say, turns a person into an object rather than a living being. As Steve Martin found out when he tweeted on the occasion of the actress Carrie Fisher's death. When I was a young man, he tweeted, Carrie Fisher was the most beautiful creature I had ever seen. She turned out to be witty and bright as well. Though some defended him, the outcry was such that Martin withdrew the tweet. Into the Renaissance, the Christian church not only understood the need to love God for his, first for his beauty, but also internalized that understanding in its spiritual practice and its concrete public witness, a witness we still see today. But since the Reformation, Christians have gradually lost that understanding. There's a lot in those two phrases that we don't have time to unpack right now. Moving to a more instrumental concept of God, loving him for what he can do for us rather than for the beauty of who he is or the relationship that we have. That has taken a toll not only on the individual spiritual lives of believers, but also on public worship and three-dimensional witness in the world. Before his papacy, Benedict XVI, then Joseph Ratzinger, wrote, the only really effective apologia for Christianity comes down to two arguments, namely the saints the church has produced and the art which has grown in her womb. Christians must not be too easily satisfied. They must make their church into a place where beauty, and hence truth, is at home. Without this, the world will become the first circle of hell. This, blunt. this very building is a kind of last homage to the idea, this building, where we are right now, is a kind of last gasp homage to the idea that beauty, the beauty of a church building, is part of Christian witness in the world. The irony here, of course, is that neither the man who gave the money to build it, nor the preacher for whom it was designed, held to historic Christian teaching. However, in God's providence, that has now changed. Um, New York City is home to dozens of late 19th and early 20th century church buildings that bear witness to a faith only few of their funders still believed. But their beauty bears witness to the faith that inspired their earlier founders. I once got to speak in um, St. Bart's, and I explained to people that if the story was there in the mosaics and the art in the building, whatever anybody believed who came. Back to Benedict. Do today's Christians of any and all persuasions believe his words? <clears throat> Do our churches act as if beauty is real and that longing for beauty is integral to helping our neighbors experience God, the font of all wisdom, knowledge, goodness, and beauty? Our culture longs for an answer to these questions. The church is called to bear witness to ultimate beauty, joy, and happiness in God, to point people toward their true home. In his book, <clears throat> The Problem of Pain, excuse me, British writer C.S. Lewis 
who I'm sure you've never heard of before, <laughs> argues that God gives us joy and pleasure and merriment broadcast. But we are never safe, he says, though we have plenty of fun and some ecstasy. The reason for this is simple, he says, for the security we crave would teach our hearts to rest in this world and pose an obstacle to God. He concludes, <clears throat> a few moments of happy love, a landscape, a symphony, a merry meeting with our friends, a bathe or a football match. Those two don't know I'm using this picture. <laughs> a bathe or a football match have no such tendency. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. One of the first things beauty does is bear witness to the reality of God. Beauty is God's message to the world that he is real, and he is not only lovable, but the source of all love and life. Through history, beauty has done this. One example is the famous church of Hagia Sophia, built in Constantinople, now Istanbul, from 532 to 537 by Byzantine Emperor Justinian. It is now a museum and has been since the early 20th century. And it, was, it became a mosque in 1453, which is why it's a combination. For more than 900 years, it was the greatest church in Christendom, a witness to the glory and grandeur of God, and it was convincing. In fact, the glory of Hagia Sophia was so great, it convinced the Russian prince Vladimir to convert to Christianity. Looking for a more satisfying religion, Vladimir sent envoys. He had sent them to Rome, but he sent envoys to his longtime trading partners in the Byzantine capital. As the Russian primary chronicle records, the beauty of Hagia Sophia was the deciding factor in their recommendation to convert to orthodoxy. I quote, we knew not whether we were in heaven or on earth, for on earth there is no such splendor or beauty, and we are at a loss how to describe it. We know only that God dwells there among men, and their service is fairer than the ceremonies of other nations, for we cannot forget that beauty. Beauty offers yet another gift to human beings, be they Christian believers or not, and that is the gift of spiritual nourishment. Jonathan Edwards said that beauty takes us out of ourselves, gives us a broader perspective, even hope. Contemporary philanthropy provides an example in the hope beauty can give, a project that has brought new hope to a medium-sized Midwestern city, one that I lived in for five years, struggling in the aftermath of disappearing manufacturing jobs. Just eight years ago, Rick and Melissa DeVos, third-generation philanthropists, launched something new. Art Prize takes over the city of Grand Rapids, Michigan, which some people call, well, Howard says it's, what is it you say it is? It's the something or other. Anyway, whatever. It's the intellectual capital of Christianity or something? Protestantism. Yes, or at least it was. Okay. For two and a half weeks, it's the home of Calvin College. I'm a graduate. I might as well just get that out of the way. Um, <laughs> hence, I was there for five years. And why it took five is another <laughs> Fortunately, my father isn't here, so we don't have to go into great detail about that. Anyway, um, just eight years, okay, just eight, I'll start that sentence over. Just eight years ago, Rick and Melissa DeVos, third-generation philanthropists, launched something new. Art Prize takes over the city of Grand Rapids, Michigan, 
for two and a half weeks at the end of September each year. My husband and I visited for the first time a few years ago and joined the other 400,000 plus men, women, and children swarming a three square mile area at the heart of the city to see the work of more than 1,700 artists in more than 160 venues. The big excitement, of course, is that the visitors get to vote to choose the winner of the $200,000 first prize. The DeVosses say their goal was to give the West Michigan Rust Belt a new identity. Did they expect this crowd? No, they laugh. They never expected to see whole families. They thought it would be 20-somethings like them who were into art. Art Prize unfolds a whole new approach to art and community right before our eyes. We also long to dwell in beauty. The Eastern Christian tradition long understood this, and Hagia Sophia is a prime example. It functioned as what Alexei Lidov, director of the Center for World Culture at Moscow State University, describes as a spatial icon. That is, a space where the art, the architecture, all the decoration, the music, the incense, the feel of the wall marble, the liturgy of the service, all work together as one entity. Each person there is not merely seeing beautiful things. He or she is inside them experiencing the promise of the beauty of the new heaven and the new earth. At Hagia Sophia, the worshiper is no longer on the outside looking in. He or she is an integral part of the glory and splendor now and to come. California Poet Laureate and former chairman of the U.S. National Endowment for the Arts, would they would get him back. Dana Joyce says that the experience of beauty can be divided into four stages. First, Arrested attention. We have to look, to linger over what we have seen or heard or read. Second, a thrill of pleasure, an unusual thrill out of proportion to the object's immediate importance. It is bigger, deeper than we are. Third, a heightened perception of the depth or meaning of things. We understand something we didn't understand before. We are more than we were before the encounter. Then, at last, it's over. The moment is gone. We can remember it, look back on it, but we cannot hold on to the thrill. I had an unexpected opportunity to experience that process in Lithuania a few years ago. My husband and I, both Scandinavians, took friends and drove all the way around the Baltic Sea, starting and ending in Copenhagen. Where else? On that journey, Lithuania was perhaps the biggest surprise. It is a Catholic country sandwiched between Orthodox Russia and Lutheran Latvia, and for many centuries, Eastern and largely Lutheran Germany. On the way to Vilnius, the capital, out in a field far from any town, there is a hill of crosses with origins stretching back over several centuries. Clearly, these crosses were a tangible way for often beleaguered Catholics to bear witness to their faith. Under 18th and 19th century Russification, the Orthodox Russians would take the crosses down, and the Lithuanians would put them back up. <laughs> then came World War I, when the Germans took them down, and the Lithuanians put them back up. Then 20 years of independence gave everyone a rest, until the Nazis came, followed by the Soviets, and the process continued down, up. Finally, the Soviets just gave up. The Lithuanians, one time the Soviets gave up. The Lithuanians were too persistent. Since the Berlin Wall came down, the country is independent and the crosses are without threat. 
for now. Pope John Paul II put one there, as did the Armenians on the 1700th anniversary of their country becoming Christian in 2001. We didn't know what to expect. I thought it would be interesting. That was an understatement. It's a long walk to the hill. Stretching out on either side are all kinds of crosses. Wood, metal, works of art, humble cobbling, shrines, stone, you name it. As I started to walk up the hill, I realized tears were streaming down my cheeks. I didn't even know I was weeping until I felt the hot tears. I was in beauty. The beauty of this tangible witness to indomitable faith. There was nothing to do but praise God. I wanted to dance and sing. It still gets me chills. In the 19th century, at the end of his novel, The Idiot, Theodore Dostoevsky put these words in the mouth of the prince. I believe the world will be saved by beauty. By that, he was pointing to the beauty of Jesus Christ and the redemption we have only through him. In the 20th century, Roman Catholic philosopher Dietrich von Hildebrand considered the question as well, how, the title of a posthumously published essay asks, do we understand beauty in light of redemption? Von Hildebrand agrees that it is God's beauty that must draw us to him. That beauty, he writes, is first and foremost a moral beauty, the beauty of holiness, like Edwards said. It's clear, he says, what that beauty has to do with redemption. 1 John 3, 2 explains just how powerful that beauty is. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Our sins are washed away, we see him. We are like him in the beauty of his holiness. What's problematic is what von Hildebrand calls the beauty of form. The beauty of things we see from sunsets, star-studded night skies, and desert abstraction, to great works of art, architecture, and design. However, from the detail and care given to the design of the tabernacle and the temple in Exodus and Samuel, as well as the visions of Isaiah and Ezekiel in the Old Testament, to the narratives of the Gospels and the vision of the New Jerusalem, where the Lamb is the light, fulfilling the visions of Isaiah and Ezekiel, in the book of Revelation, the Bible tells us that God himself takes great interest in the beauty of form and its role in redemption. Yet today, von Hildebrand says, there are two common objections to that notion. For one, beauty of form is a luxury. Not bad in itself, but something extra added on, certainly not central to our salvation. Christians should apply themselves to great economic and social ills, not indulge in trifles like beauty. For another, beautiful things, even sunsets, can be a distraction, taking us away from the more important pursuit of godliness and God himself. But the German philosopher isn't buying it, and neither am I. He bluntly opens his rebuttal to such a notion. This utilitarianism is by no means the spirit of the gospel. An estimate of all things from the viewpoint of their practical and absolute necessity is to be found neither in God's creation or the revelation of Christ. In these, on the contrary, the principle of superabundance rules. 
Is God not lavish in his creation? Is beauty in nature not the clearest proof of this divine profusion, since it is in no way practically indispensable in the economy of nature? So as Calvin said, one of the reasons he believed in God was pears, because we don't really need pears. We have apples. <laughs> but God thought we needed pears too, superabundance. Von Hildebrand draws our attention to the example of Christ at the wedding in Cana, and so does Giotto. With people suffering from disease, hungry and thirsty, living in poverty, and facing Roman oppression, what was the savior of the world thinking when he began his ministry by making wine for a party that had already gone through the wine house provided? <laughs> Saving the best until last when everyone was drunk? Today, we ask the same question. Isn't our main calling to care for the sick and hungry and to spread the gospel throughout the world rather than to raise, to waste God's money on arts or buildings? Von Hildebrand says we are missing the point. The reason, the purpose for which God wants us to heal and provide for us, that's the point. He says, utilitarian charity, I love this line, is cool, calculated, and marked by utilitarian dryness. At Cana, we find this divine extravagance, this unlimitedness of charity which reaches to the smallest detail. It is this divine tenderness which excludes no gift from its intention as long as it is a beneficial good to the person. At Cana, joy was the theme. Yes, joy is the theme. Christ would go on to heal the sick, feed the hungry, make the lame to walk and the blind to see, and ultimately give his life that we might live eternally. In his first miracle, he was showing us why he was about to do these things, so that we might enter into joy eternally. And that joy will be fully and concretely realized in the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and earth, our ultimate home, that the beauty of the earth and of holiness bear witness to. But what about the problem of beauty distracting us from God? Von Hildebrand says it does just the opposite. First, he distinguishes between two kinds of beauty of form. He was a philosopher. One is fairly simple. It is the difference between a clear musical note as opposed to a noise. I'm not sure George Gershwin would agree. Anyway, the other is more complex. It calls into our being a whole spiritual world, which is laden with a host of spiritual elements the poetic as opposed to the prosaic, inner abundance as opposed to every falsehood and affectation, inner greatness as opposed to everything mediocre. My experience in Lithuania comes to mind. But still, what does this have to do with redemption? Is it not superfluous, distracting? I don't think that's distracting. No, von Hildebrand says, but rather this beauty of form is a pedestal, a mirror, a pointer, a simile, a real, tangible reality that is both in these objects, or sounds, or words, or visions, and that transcends them. It's a talisman. Not only does beauty point us to that which is eternal and connect us to the experience and longing for joy, beauty also convicts. In a vision described in Ezekiel 43, the prophet has seen the temple the dwelling of God himself in great detail. If you read that, it's on and on. God speaks, <laughs> Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. 
God's beauty enables us to see ourselves in sharp contrast. In his book, The Invisible Dragon, this is, this is the famous altarpiece if you saw um, uh, Mountain Men, yeah. And if you uh, read the book, this is the famous Ghent altarpiece. And this is, this is the New Jerusalem where the Lamb is the light sitting on the throne. And God the Father. And of course you have Adam and Eve, how it all began, right? Um, in his book, The Invisible Dragon, Four Essays on Beauty, atheist art critic Dave Hickey maintains that beauty should change the viewer. Benedict 16 explains how that happens. Beauty pulls us up short, but in so doing, it reminds us of our final destiny. It sets us back on our path, fills us with new hope, gives us the courage to live to the full, the unique gift of life. However, beauty can be misused. In Ezekiel 16, the prophet describes how God took Jerusalem from a cast-off newborn to a beautiful human being. But what did Jerusalem do? Her people, quote, trusted in their beauty and played the whore because of their renown, end quote. Instead of beauty being an attribute and a gift of God to draw the people to their creator, they took that beauty for granted as a possession and used it to hold power over others just as the critics today complain. So from the Enlightenment on, beauty is valued not for its power to lead us beyond ourselves, but rather to focus our attention on ourselves and our surroundings. No longer is beauty something we participate in as we glorify God. It is now something out there, existing only for our own pleasure and preoccupation or self-expression, a drug the very things on Hildebrand's critics' site. But of course, some beauty is constructed. In August 2009, the Met, a museum I think you all know, hosted a show called Model as Muse, Embodying Fashion 1947 to 1997. Maybe some of you saw it. The show documented 50 years of the social construction of feminine beauty. The first gallery opened with Irving Penn's 1947 photograph of the 12 most photographed models of the period. Malin Young, writing for Intelligent Life, described these women as, quote, having captivating faces, all-knowing eyes, and arched brows. These women, she said, appear to have interesting personalities. They look, what is it, sophisticated, old, and rather unlike the adolescents currently gracing the pages of Vogue, end quote. In the 1970s, Young wrote, Decadence and languor was in, fragile dewiness was out, the look was highly sexualized. A 1976 Helmut Newton photograph shows Lisa Taylor, quote, with legs akimbo, slightly licking her chops as a faceless half-nude hunk awaits her summons. Models posed with raw meat and wolves, adapted manly wide-leg stances and wore dresses that resembled lounge bear. By the 1990s, models are no longer the demure, strong women of 1947, but rather are the cream of the world of the branded supermodel. In a 1992 Patrick de Marchalier photograph, Young writes, depictions of beauty become more familiar, less exotic, and therefore less interesting. It's a bit like scanning a weathered fashion magazine. This is but one example of constructed beauty. 
It is constantly changing and leaving its audiences hungry and thirsty for something more. It just may be that people today settle for such poor substitutes because the church has abandoned beauty as part of her life and witness. If anyone should know the difference between beauty and its imitation, it is the Christian. But we have let that critical part of our history and our theology atrophy to the point that we no longer speak in a visual vocabulary, even in this very visual age. During the first great awakening in New England, Jonathan Edwards, then pastor, wrote a book called Religious Affections, which my husband made me read to help Christians sort out which feelings, emotions, experiences were truly of God and which were not. It was sort of like, you know, trying to figure out some of the things that were happening at the vineyard a few years ago. Which of this is real and which is hysteria. That's why Edwards wrote. It is there that Edwards claims that our love for God is genuine only if we are drawn to him for his beauty and not for how he can benefit us. Edwards says it this way. The basis for true delight that a real Christian has is in God and in his perfection. His delight is in Christ and in his beauty. As Christians born to delight in God's beauty in all its forms, we have all heard or read the biblical descriptions of the beauty and grandeur of God, the beauty that Jonathan Edwards says must be our reason for loving him, the cosmic picture God draws at the end of Job, the still, small voice that speaks to Elijah hiding in the cleft of the rock to be able to survive the radiance of God's glory as it passes by. The majestic, white-robed, gleaming Savior on the Mount of Transfiguration, who later lights the city of God in the book of Revelation, his cloak so white and filled with light that no fuller could create, as Mark says. In Genesis, Eve uses the beauty of the forbidden fruit. It is pleasing to the eye, she says as one of her excuses for disobeying God. From then on, the Bible provides example after example of appearances being deceiving. But in Revelation, at the end of time, that dichotomy is ended. As von Hildebrand says, the beauty of form in our world provides real, tangible evidence that even greater beauty is awaiting us. Our faith tells us we will see him one day in our eternal home the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, and the new earth. Finally, our moments of being in beauty, rather than its outside observers, will become our everlasting experience. We will live forever in tangible beauty, inside and out. Psalm 27.4 puts it this way. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. To end where we began, as Agnes Martin said, beauty is inextricably linked to happiness. No one understood this better than Augustine of Hippo. And I, when, I, when I read him, I just think, why wasn't I living in the fourth century so I could have gone to his church? <laughs> okay, <clears throat> enough. Um, Augustine of Hippo, my hero, who put it this way in his exposition on Psalm 33. I close with his words and images of spaces where Christians worship in beauty today and have.
for centuries in some cases. Augustine. Whatever people do, good or bad, their motive is always to get rid of their misery and win happiness. Invariably, they want to be happy. People who lead good lives and people who lead bad lives, they all want to be happy. But what they all want does not come the way of all. They all want happiness, but the only ones who will get it are those who want to be just. It may even happen that someone wants to be happy in order to do wrong. And where do people look for happiness? To money, silver and gold, estates, farms, houses, slaves, worldly pomp, the prestige that will swiftly slip away and be lost. They want to be happy by possessing things. Back to those people in the Old Testament. He who poured all your gifts on you, who brought you into existence, who bestows on you his son and his reign in common with all your neighbors, even if they are wicked, who gives you crops, springs of water, life, health, and immense consolations. He is keeping for you something that he will give to no one else but you. What is this that he is keeping for you? Himself. Ask for something else if you can think of anything better. God is reserving himself for you. Our happiness, then, will consist in possessing God. How should we understand this? We shall possess him, yes, but will he not also possess us? God both possesses and is possessed, and all this is for our benefit. For although we possess him in order that we may be happy, the converse is not true. He does not possess us in order that he may be happy. He possesses us and is possessed by us to no other end.